If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Paul Revere, where you might hear his famous line, one if by land, two if by sea. He'll be answering our call in 1802 at the age of 67. He will have 16 children in his life and outlive 11 of them before dying at the age of 83. You may have heard of Paul Revere's Midnight Ride, where he rode through the streets screaming, The British are coming! The British are coming! And if you have, it's because of a poet named Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. But the problem is this. That story is not true. Revere will clarify the absurdity of this tale while sharing the true story of his Midnight Ride in Part 2. But as we build to that moment, answering the question, who is Paul Revere, is difficult because he was proficient at almost everything he did. He was a master goldsmith, a dentist, a cannon maker, and a grandmaster Freemason. But there was one part of his life that was one catastrophe after the other, being a soldier. While learning of his mistakes and misfortunes on the battlefield, listen for the name Wadsworth again. The Wadsworth in this episode that ended up at odds with Revere was the grandfather of the poet that resurrected Paul Revere's legacy after the founding fathers, who were once his friends, had forgotten him. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and silversmiths everywhere, I give you Paul Revere. Hello, is that you, Colonel Revere? It is indeed. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, sir. My name is Tony Dean. I'm calling you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were sitting across the table from one another enjoying a drink over at the Green Dragon Tavern. It also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. And Colonel Revere, i got to tell you, you are very famous in our time and I was hoping I could ask you some questions, but before I do, I understand that this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you may have first? Yes. Without getting into too much detail, I, this form of communication is very strange to me, and do we know of the person who invented it? The first name that comes to my mind would be Dr. Franklin. Well, that would be an obvious has- guess, wouldn't it? Yeah, he has passed, however, so it, it cannot be him. Otherwise, I concentrate on my iron foundry and on my copper rolling mill. And after that, these new devices are something I do not understand. Well, I have to be honest with you. I've done quite a bit of reading about your life. And you're right. If, I, if you were to take a guess in your time who would have invented this, I would have guessed Dr. Franklin as well. However, I wouldn't have been super surprised if you hadn't played a role in inventing something like this because you were so ahead of your time with business. In fact, in our time, I read an article that said that you may have been one of the first real industrialists as you continued to work with metal in different ways to make it useful depending on what was going on, whether they were building churches or something was going on with war or something like that. So where did that inventive nature of yours come from? Well, there was need. And, of course, there was always a need from my earliest days as a silversmith, or as my title is more properly called, Master Goldsmith. With a large family, there is a need for income. In those early days, before the War for Independence, after having apprenticed for my father, who had the very French name of Apollos Rivoire when he arrived here, I, of course, took over the shop that he started with the casting of silver objects, be it whole tea sets, which could pay for half, if not all, of a house, to pieces such as plates and teapots and tankards and such, much as my father had done, or buttons for coats, And it was very successful, but 
those were very difficult times of trade. So I had to find other, dare I say, business opportunities, whether it would be cutting copper plates for prints, such as the famous depiction of the Boston Massacre, or the landing of the soldiers in 1768, which I introduced in 1770, or the pouring of tea down the throats of American colonists in those days. Now, of course, those were all borrowed, but we can discuss that later. But then, of course, as the war broke out, I had other duties, which I'm sure we will discuss, my messenger riding, for one, but there was also a need for false teeth. So, <laughs> Jeez, you I, in everything. I made false teeth. I did, out of necessity. As you probably know, I and my two wives, Sarah, who departed this world in 1773, and my wife, Rachel, amongst the three of us, we have had 16 children seven who survived to this date. And with that many mouths to feed, there must be business. There must be trade. So be it copper plates, be it false teeth, or be it silver, there was a need. And then, you were, of course, during the war, I served. Let me back up for a minute because yes. I appreciate what you're saying that with all these kids, which, by the way, it appears to me that you were trying to propagate the entire United States. I mean, you are a man who knows how to make lots of kids. Indeed. Well, they make wonderful apprentices if they're boys. Okay. What about the girls? What is their value? Well, they shall marry other tradesmen in the early days. I could not offer them the education that I can now, why my young daughter Maria has been attending a young ladies' academy in Woburn. So the opportunities that my children have now is far greater than the opportunities my children had before the war. Oh, because you've been more successful in business. Indeed. Oh, that makes sense. And I'm not surprised. I'm guessing you're the kind of person that would want to provide as much of an advantage as possible for these kids as they got older, should you be in a situation to do that. Indeed. Yeah. Now, you had said that you had to have an income because you had such a big family. But if we're being completely honest, you were that hardworking in your early years as well before you had a family, weren't you? I was indeed. And I did go on a bit about all the trades I got involved in with your first question. But the importance of that is that trade was difficult because of the policies of Parliament in Great Britain. And we were part of the empire, and these policies of there of paying for the wars against the French affected us directly. Not only did we help fight in those wars, but we expected protection, but we had nothing against paying taxes. As good citizens of a community, we pay our taxes, but we believe that we have the right to representation, meaning the town meeting or general court here in Massachusetts. So it was not a matter of paying taxes. It was a matter of who would determine to pay those taxes. And let us be frank, because if we all suffer during depressed times, even the wealthiest merchant might not buy a silver tea set from Paul Revere. So there was need, which is why I also became a messenger rider. Now, regarding messenger riding, of course, there was not just financial reward, as many times I was not paid for my rides, but the excitement of it, being part of something, dare I say, revolutionary, being at the beginnings of history, the rest of those trades were, it was dire need for my family. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to come back to the messenger writing because I have a lot of questions on that. When you had mentioned earlier that you made false teeth and you worked in dentistry, is my understanding, I read something that I thought was entertaining. You keep mentioning that there was a need for what you were creating. And when you were 
building bells. There was a need because there were more churches and when there were cannons and when there were, like you said, tea sets, when people needed tea sets, when they needed things for their house, things made of silver, all of this is based on need. And it seems to me that your business is a little bit more honorable than maybe what some would say Mr. Hancock's business is, where maybe there's a little under-the-table work going on, some smuggling. But your business was centered just around need, period. Until we get to the false teeth, because I read that the false teeth that you made looked great, but you didn't promise that they worked. Is that correct? Well, you're speaking of my first ad in 1768. Now, my original advertisement stated that they would look good, but I did not promise you could eat with them. <laughs> However, upon further study, courtesy of John Baker, a surgeon dentist, who taught me and made sure that my studying of false teeth continued, was to the point where in 1770, when I advertised again, I did promise that you could eat and that you would have no difficulties in speaking. So I grew, what is the word I'm looking for, more proficient with those teeth that makes than a I lot had of sense. when I first started. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, because that's really how you did everything. As the need developed, you kept improving different things that you were making throughout your life, so that actually makes a lot of sense. Of course, you know the way the media is. I only heard the first part of that story, which is that you couldn't eat with the teeth you were making, and now you've told me the rest of the story. Indeed. Can I read a small excerpt from you from that first advertisement? Of oh, please do. Please do. It looks as well as the natural and answers the end of speaking. No, that is the promise of the very first advertisement. Where was that advertisement? I don't have which paper it was in front of me. But it was in one of the papers. It was indeed. Was it super expensive it to advertise in the papers in your time? It was, but it was a necessary expense for such notifications as that. Yeah, that makes sense. You're not advertising. How, how would people find the teeth? It's not like they're just going to knock on your door randomly and say, hey, do you have any teeth? Indeed. Yeah. Now, of course, once the other businesses began, of course, I stopped performing. I suppose I could call it surgery because I was giving them false teeth and I was wiring them in their mouths. People such as my dear departed friend, Dr. Joseph Warren. What made you think that you could go, here you are raised as a silversmith, what would make you think that, you know what, you should just learn dentistry and start doing surgery and operating on people? What made you think that you could do that? Well, I have the skills with silver. Now, I did not offer to pull teeth, and I did not construct whole dentures. So there is a difference. So I was certainly not a surgeon dentist. But I could perform the simple tasks, and of course, silver and gold wire are in much use in my shop for other tasks. So I could wire those false teeth into the mouths of the people who came in for them. I see. So you did very specific things with dentistry. You weren't an all-around, I-can-do-anything dentist. No. Well, I would not say that I was a surgeon dentist. It was just, I would say for simple replacements of teeth, that was what I was best at. Okay. I wonder if because you're working in a small space there and it's such detailed work when you're dealing with teeth, I wonder if there are some similarities with that compared to when you're working with precious metals. Well, most definitely. Of course, the whole process of working with precious metals and in my earliest days in my silver shop, there was a great deal that was similar. Of course, much of it has to do with creating a cast to pour the silver into and then taking various instruments, such as hammers, once it is solidified to uh, hammer it into the proper shape, and then, of course, the finish work of engraving it. And all of it, of course, is a great deal time-consuming. And I found over the years that the more precise the silver work, the better that I was. So you picked this up from your father. How do you get into the silver business? I mean, did your 
dad start that with you when you were really young? Or did you come over to the United States together? How did that all come about? What did that look like? Actually, father came over as a religious refugee from France, which, of course, the winter of 1715 to 16, father came over on the ship as a, what you would call a French Huguenot, a French Protestant. Catholic King Louis XIV was being very harsh with the Protestant population of France, so father made his escape on a ship coming to Boston, and upon landing, was apprenticed to John Coney as a master goldsmith was the proper title, but you may use the term silversmith. So I was born here in Massachusetts. I was born in Boston in December of 1734. So I did not come over on that ship. That was about, let me think now, about 20 years before I was born, maybe a little bit less than that, maybe about 18 years. And then was he teaching you the trade at a very young age? Oh, at 13. At 13... (laughs) I started as an apprentice, and five years later, my brother Thomas joined me. Now, of course, at 13, I was performing minor tasks like sweeping the floor, recovering used silver, and saving it for further use, and tending to the fire. But as I got older, of course, I learned all of the processes of silver work, from casting it to hammering it to seaming it, which means attaching all of the handles and all of that and using solder to the point where I was finishing and polishing and engraving. But of course, that takes time. And father, being very much the perfectionist, was not willing to just have me start with those sorts of tasks, as any other shopkeeper would with his apprentices. Because there are also journeymen who are men who are skilled at the trade, whatever it is, but do not have the money to start their own shop. So there were journeymen around as well. Is an apprentice someone that's going to take over the shop and a journeyman is somebody who just works there? Yes. In our case, father always assumed that I, as the oldest boy, would be the one who would take over the shop. And I would believe that most of the time that would be the case. Journeymen were looking for opportunities with the master who paid the most. I'm sure there were times where if the journeyman was a right fit for the master of the shop, he might take over the business. But of course, the reason that they are called journeymen is that they are so. Uh, My situation was unique. But I would argue that most tradesmen, most masters of whatever work that they do, would, if they had an oldest son, I would believe that would be the case much of the time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you remember at what age that you became proficient, that you felt like you knew what you were doing? Well, I started at 13, and it was a gradual process. But, of course, father passed away in 1754, and there would be a two-year span where mother was holding custody of the shop until I came of age. And two years' time, I had done so. By the time I was with father, at that point, I had become quite proficient enough to take over the trade. When father passed in 1754, I took all the knowledge that he gave me so they could prosper at my shop. Was he a patient man? If I went to the right church, yes. If I went to another church rather than the New Brick Church to hear... A minister speak, not so much. But of course, father had his own difficulties because I believe that his trade was hurt at times because of his name, which is why after some time in Boston, he changed it to Paul Revere from a Paulus Revoir. People didn't know what to do because they couldn't, his name was clearly French. And of course, these being British colonies at the time, And with the menace of the French above us in Canada, there was not great love for the French. Oh, that makes sense. So changing your name to Revere was an absolute necessity. It was. Now, after the revolution, (laughs) 
anything French was great during the time of the revolution because the French got involved, I suppose. It was until the end of President Washington's time in office and John Adams' time as president, because, of course, then there had been the French Revolution, and the French were expecting us to be their allies in any wars against the British, which wisely we did not do. It was President Washington, followed by President Adams, that set the policy of being neutral in their conflicts and staying out of European affairs, which incensed them. So, yes, there was a great deal of time after the war in the 1780s where our relationship with France was very good. But, of course, with our new government, after the Constitution of 1787, it started to deteriorate, especially with the French Revolution. Do you see yourself as a very political person? I do. For why else? I have not held office, but I do because I have been involved in politics since I was a master of my shop. The early times before the war when we were gathering politically, be it the Sons of Liberty or be it the North End Caucus, which Dr. Warren and I led as a means of gathering information, or being the only artisan who is a member of an organization called the Long Room Club, which was a political discussion group, which included both Adamses, John Hancock, Dr. Warren, and James Otis, and myself, Paul Revere, the only Wow, that's quite a group. And, of course, my time, which continues to this day as a Freemason, has aided me not only with my trade, with brothers bringing in their work that is needed, for silver, but also in political action as well. Well, that really is interesting that you never held political office, considering that you were involved in all of those different organizations. And specifically, when you were talking about the Freemasons, I mean, you were at the highest level in that, weren't you? I was indeed. Not that long ago, as a matter of fact. In the last decade, I was Grand Master, the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts. And of course, before that, In my earliest days, I joined St. Andrew's Lodge and eventually became master of that as well, before becoming Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts. What are some of the responsibilities of the Grand Master of one of the Freemason organizations? Well, of course, as Grand Master of all of the lodges of Massachusetts, you are virtually in command of all of those lodges throughout Massachusetts, organizing, setting rules and standards, setting meetings, new members being accepted into the brotherhood, to the fraternity. All of the responsibilities, I would say, that a president or a governor would have, but of that organization. I would say also that what makes me proudest of being a Freemason is the fact that rank does not matter. Any good man of principle is accepted into Freemasonry. One just needed to be a man of worth with good actions, with charity and fortitude in all matters is a splendid organization to be a part of. Social harmony or reason deference to authority, all good things, and why politically I'm aligned with the Federalists and find Mr. Jefferson and his allies suspicious, shall we say. (laughs) Is that right? In our time, when you talk about the Freemasons, in our time the Freemasons are seen like as the secret society and there's all this clandestine activity and there's all this mystery behind all of their different rituals that they go through. Is that what it's like in your time? Well, the rituals are secret, but there are many lodges throughout what is now the United States. And of course, Freemasonry came over from Europe, most particularly England, be they ancients or moderns. It is a very old and distinguished organization. And though the rituals are hidden from the public, the good works of lodges are not. 
they are about everywhere. Charitable organization that is for the good of all people. So I would is say the, the rituals the are done in secret. It is indeed good works. It's just an organization that is basically trying to do good for the community and bring good people together to do that good. It is indeed. That makes a lot of sense, because in our time, when we look back at the Freemasons, we look at them and we're like, George Washington was a Freemason, and this person was a Freemason. And from a distance from where we are, it kind of looks like all these Freemasons got together and they worked together, so they got all the stuff and the recognition and all the money. When the reality is, these are just good people often do good things. Devotion to charity, virtue, and enlightenment. Ideals of order and natural ties of affection to brother members and, I would add, to the community. That is what Freemasonry is all about. Boy, that makes a lot of sense. I never really thought about it that way, and it makes a lot of sense. Hey, a little bit ago, you were talking about how your father, when he came to the United States... You were talking about how he was escaping that government. Did you say it was a French king? Is that what you said? Yes, King Louis Fourteenth. Isn't there a certain irony that your father escapes a king to come here, and then you build a life, and of course he's a silver or goldsmith, and then you end up being a silver and or goldsmith. I'm a little confused on that term. Maybe you can clear that up after. But then while you're here, you have to escape King George. So, I mean, it's literally, he passed everything he had, is the good and the bad, and then passed it to you, and you had to overcome the same things that he had to overcome. Indeed. Now, let me, we can make this conversation very simple. The title is Master Goldsmith, but I am known as a silversmith. So, if it makes you more comfortable to just say silver, silversmith, please do, because that is what I worked with the most in those days. I see. So the silversmith is kind of under the master goldsmith title. It is. It, the master goldsmith title covers all the work that is done, but all the work that is done, for the most part, is with silver. Oh, okay. All right, now I see what you're saying. I'm sitting here thinking, why is this so hard for me to understand? And now I just got it now. Okay, now I'm it is just a. T- it is a title, sir. Okay. A goldsmith... It's just a title. A master goldsmith would certainly work with silver. And work with silver most of the time. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So, here you are, you've established your business, and you're still pretty young, and around the age of 19, it looks like you've been silversmithing for six years, you decide to get involved in the French and Indian War. Did that not disrupt your business plans? It did. It was only for one year, however. It is an interesting story. I think what I would like people to remember is that I was that young, and Governor Shirley and others saw something in me enough to make me a lieutenant of artillery. Now, there was nothing glorious about the campaign. It was 1756, and we were supposed to march out and take a fortification called Crown Point. We ended up being at a fort in New York, Fort William Henry. And if that name rings a bell in your head, it should, because we were there under General Winslow of Marshfield, Massachusetts in 1756. Nothing happened. There was much sitting about camp. There were many arguments amongst the officers. There was discord between regular officers and colonial officers throughout the war, whatever theater it might be, and we got sick, we set our own camp, and we eventually marched home. And lucky that we did, because the following year, of 1757, the Marquis de Montcalm surrounded and besieged that fort, and eventually... British forces surrendered, and many at the end of the column leaving the fort were massacred by his Indians. So we were there at the right year, I would think, and fortunately not there the year following. So if you had been there a year later, you'd be dead. If I were at the rear of the column or had been wounded, yes, because they attacked the hospital in the rear of the column, because they had been promised reward 
and had not gotten it. Why sign up at all? I'm confused because it's clear your whole life, the first 20 years of your life, your father was probably involving you with something in gold and silver when you were five or six or seven. I'm guessing you were always around it. Why get involved in that at all when you have this business already established and you're building it? Well, there was a fear of the future, which I and others had. And, of course, militia duty was compulsory. You were expected to be part of the militia and militia duty throughout Massachusetts. There were muster days, you see. But fear of the French, which was always present, fear of the French in Canada, made us want to sign up because if the French had defeated British forces, which at later points in the war, such as 1757, it was not so sure that there would be British victory, we could end up being French colonies with wow. a very different future ahead of us. It is also the same reason why I became involved before the revolution in the movement that would eventually bring us to independence in a new country. You think of it as the old ministers used to say, as rowing a boat with two oars. One oar is for your private good, succeeding at your trade, succeeding for your family, prospering to leave them something. And the second oar is for the community. As Cotton Mather and many other divines would preach on Sundays, with one oar, you are lost. With two oars, you are in perfect harmony with the world. And that is why I believe it was necessary not only to be a second lieutenant in the French and Indian War, though I served a, a minimal part of what would happen in the struggle, and later why I became involved in the struggle for our rights as Englishmen and eventually our independence. A fear of the future and what would happen if I did not become involved. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, the last thing you want to do is be sitting on the sidelines when everybody is fighting for your freedom. Indeed. And if things should go awry, then one should not complain if one did not participate. Yeah, it's fascinating to think that when you go to, so you get involved in the French Indian War and you're there for a year and then nothing happens, at least while you're there. And later on in your military career, isn't that almost exactly what happened when you went to, I think it's called Fort Castle William, where you're right in the middle of the Revolutionary War and you go to Fort Castle William and say you got to guard this in case the British come back, but nothing ever happened? I mean, is that not similar? Very similar. And you bring us to an unfortunate time in my life. But with candor, I will speak of these things. It had been my thought that after being a messenger writer and all I had done, all of my trips to New York and to Philadelphia, to Portsmouth, to warn them there of a fleet which did not come, but two regiments that were on the way to secure the military stores there. And, of course, my famous ride of April of 1775 to alert the countryside. And Mr. Adams and Mr. Hancock, and eventually, though I would not get there, conquered. It, is, it was my hope that I would be able to gain rank in General Washington's Continental Army. That my dear friends in the Continental Congress in Philadelphia... The Adamses, John Hancock, Robert Treat Payne, Elbridge Gerry, that they would remember all I had done and that I would be able to be commissioned as an artillery officer. And that opportunity never came. It came to others, such as Henry Knox. I found that I had to be content with service in the Massachusetts militia. So I was indeed sent to the fort, which... When abandoned, a number of things had been blown up on the General Howe's leaving Boston in March of 1776 with his army, his navy, and as many Tories who could get on those ships. I was charged with particularly restoring any artillery pieces out there and the fortifications. I was a major, and eventually, later in the fall, I would rise to lieutenant colonel, yet... The British had no interest in returning to Boston. 
their eyes were elsewhere. It's, if you've read histories of the war, the campaign of 1776 was New York. The campaigns of 1777 were again in New York, the Saratoga campaign, and capturing Philadelphia. There was no opportunity for myself or the Massachusetts militia to contribute to the war except to maintain the fort in the harbor, which was formerly called Castle William. And I can tell you that such idleness at a military post propagates some of the worst characters of men, be it drunkenness, idleness, sleeping on guard duty. I spent more time bickering with other officers and court-martials and punishments than I did anything else. So I was given one opportunity in 1777 to march German prisoners from Worcester to Boston. And it was not until the Newport campaign of 1778 that I had another opportunity, and that ended up not being an opportunity either. Even during the siege before that, there was only one opportunity to fire artillery out in the Harbor Islands. So there was not much opportunity because once the siege of Boston was lifted, so the British forces did not come back. You could argue that you were in the the wrong place at the right time as far as you ending up alive in these battles. I mean, as a soldier, you certainly want to see some action and you want to fight for your country and the last thing you want to do is sit idle and do nothing when people are dying. But at the same time, I mean, it had to be maddening sitting there and nothing was happening. It was. Having arguments about pay and uniforms and idleness of soldiers was not the same as being at battles such as Trenton or Princeton or Monmouth Courthouse. And the one great opportunity I had after the siege of Newport was given up because the French fleet was damaged in a storm and did not return, even though the British fleet did, was, of course, the campaign in the northern part of Massachusetts on the Penobscot at the, as we called it, Bagaduce Peninsula. And it is not a story I like to retell, but for your benefit, I am willing to answer questions about it. Well, I was going to ask you about Penobscot. In our time, Penobscot is a part of Maine. I think Maine is a state in your time. I'm not sure, but maybe not. But in your time, Penobscot is a part of Massachusetts, I think. It is. Well, if you would just kind of tell me what happened. What I've read about this, this was a catastrophe between the Navy and the Army on the ground. And I think you were on the ground, isn't that right? I was. I was what? indeed. I was in command of the artillery. What happened? It's artillery. Well, we had... A fine fleet put together. We had Continental Navy ships under the command of Commodore Dudley Saltonstall, who would not prove his worth on the campaign. We had land forces under the command of Solomon Lovell, General Solomon Lovell, and his second in command was General Peleg Wadsworth, who would be a critic of mine. There were, of course, other officers, Major Todd, who, of course, I was involved with at Castle Island at, during those times in Boston. And, of course, there was a Marine lieutenant named Carnes who all would be detractors and would attack my character. So much so that after the disastrous campaign, when I was censured for cowardice and insubordination, I demanded a court-martial and would be cleared of these charges in 1782 because of the disastrous conditions and the confusion of the campaign and the fact that, in my mind, I took command of my men and got them to safety. Now, there were some disputes over things that I said to General Wadsworth regarding a boat, which was a mistake on my part, but certainly not fatal to the outcome. I mean, there were a number of things that went wrong. As I mentioned, upon our arrival that summer, our troops were landed and stormed the cliffs to where Fort George was. And with any 
ambition on General Lovell's part that first day that we took the heights, we could have taken that fort. But General Lovell decided to slay a siege and kept expecting Commodore Saltonstall to take the Navy down further down the harbor and to take the small British fleet that was there of smaller boats. But he would not do it. And all the while, the general and the admiral sat there waiting for the other to do something. We held councils of war where I made my opinion, a minority one, I might add, that if we do not take care of this business in the first 10 days or so of the siege, then we should give it up. So I believe that my statements to that effect had a lot to do with some of the charges that were later put against me. I see. When you had said there was an argument with General Wadsworth, you were telling him that you were taking your troops out of the battle. Is that He wanted my boat. He wanted my boat to rescue some men, and I already had the boat loaded with provisions from my artillery battalion and some personal provisions. And before I could take on those men, all of that had to be unloaded. So it was a matter of timing and impatience and in the heat of battle. Looking back now, I perhaps should not have been so abrupt with him in telling him he had no right to command me. But there was such a state of confusion with the, uh, all of the officers in command that much as I would at my shop, I felt the need to take command of my men first and not worry so much about the confusion of the generals and the Navy. Looking back now, I would say that it was the wrong choice of words. But I eventually did give him the boat that he requested, but it had to be unloaded. When I ask this question, this is not meant to be argumentative. Your commitment to the nation, everything you've done is extraordinary. So this is not meant to be argumentative. But when you told him that he does not have the right to tell you what to do, he actually didn't he? He was second in command of the land forces. Yes, he did. And that was Wadsworth. I was just not thinking. It was. Yeah, it's interesting. It was a mistake on my part. His name actually becomes an important part of your history. In fact, his name, and this isn't anything you would know about, becomes an important part of history. It's one of the reasons in our time that you are so famous. Isn't that strange? Indeed. It is. I know not of what you speak, but that is an interesting irony of history, is it not? It is a very interesting irony. Yeah, you've had a few of these in your life, that's for sure. So, Penobscot was an absolute mess. I mean, this was a catastrophe. So, you've got three significant parts of your military career that you've talked about. You've got the French-Indian War, which nothing happened for you. And then you've got that the second event, which for right now we were talking about, and it skips my mind. What was the second one we just talked about? Well, there was, of course, Castle William. The skirmishes, the skirmishes in Boston Harbor, the escorting of the prisoners from Worcester to Boston, German prisoners from Hessians from the Saratoga campaign, and then Newport. Did those not go well either? Well, Newport, which was... The second attempt at Newport was the year before, 1778, did not go well either. It was the first attempt of the new alliance of American forces and French forces, and it was a disaster because as we were besieging Newport, a terrible storm came in and wrecked both navies, and the French Navy retreated to Boston to be refitted, and did not come back. The British fleet left under Lord Admiral Howe was refitted and did come back. So without the French Navy to break up the British Navy, the siege could not be continued because there was no means for us to starve them out to surrender. So General Sullivan, who was in command, lifted the siege and we all went home. Your military career has to feel like a disaster. Very disappointing. Which is why, after both Newport campaigns, the first time we marched down there and nothing happened at all. And then, of course, the second time with the great storm, 
And then the campaign on the Penobscot, why I felt my honor had been besmirched and why I demanded that court-martial to clear my good name so that I go on with my business and my life. You said you were accused at Penobscot of cowardice, and what was the other thing? Insubordination. Insubordination. The General Wadsworth incident you spoke of. Okay. Which I can't imagine. The insubordination, it sounds like that did happen, but the cowardice, there's no way. I mean, you, are you a person that's afraid of battle? Certainly not. There was no time where I was not willing to go into combat and, with our artillery, reduce the fort. That should have been done at the very beginning. I believe the cowardice charge came from councils of war when I advised after some time that we should lift the siege because our forces were withering away. We were militia. We were militia from Massachusetts and New Hampshire. It is not as though we had General Washington and General Greene and the Continental Army present. We had militia. And militia are best when they're active immediately, not when they are sitting about camp. And I learned this from my experience in the war against the French and being in New York on that campaign. The same thing happened. Idleness brought about disappointment. I felt that the same thing was happening again as had happened at both Newport campaigns as well. I felt that after those first 10 days, if we were not about our business at taking that fort, then we should go home. I see. I wonder what would have happened, how different your life would have been if at Penobscot, if you would have been the one in command, or if somebody would have listened to you and you said, look, we got to go now. Militia cannot wait. we got to move while we're fresh. We can't sit around and do nothing. I wonder what would have happened if you would have moved right away and you would have, that campaign would have gone completely the opposite direction. The people on the ground and the people in the, uh, on the sea would have been working together, and you would, it would have just been a phenomenal campaign. I wonder if your life would have gone a different direction, if maybe you had been even more involved in the military and maybe rose up to general, maybe. One wonders. They spent most of that time attacking my character, stating that the artillery was very unmilitary in the way it behaved in the campaign, which I, to this day, astonishes me because I have no idea what that means when the commander of the Navy, Commodore Saltonstall, and General Lovell cannot coordinate their movements or in any aggressive manner whatsoever either take the British fleet or take the fort. One of those would have eased the pressure of the other. Or why not attack in unison, as they should have, from the very beginning? And yet, rather than that, with my disagreements at councils of war, they attacked my character, my courage, and later my being insubordinate. And that became more important than what happened on the campaign and it certainly went into prominence when we returned home and I was censored. As you can tell, it makes me warm to this day. I can tell. And I think that would make anybody w warm. I mean, the last thing in our time, character is important, no question about it. But in your time, I think it's everything. It is. I mean, you and think about your dad. You'd mention your dad comes over and just because his name sounds French, they look at him and say, well, you're a bad guy. That's it. No character. We're not going to work with you. Well, I would not go that far. I would say that they were suspicious of the growing French community in Boston. All of it Protestant. All of them Huguenots escaping France. There are some somewhat humorous stories about the first interactions when French Huguenots came from France and arrived in Boston. The magistrates of the town were very much angered by the fact that French Protestants celebrated Christmas. Christmas is in Boston in these times is not something that Congregationalists celebrate. Really? It is something that we, when we think of Christmas, it is something from the Church of Rome and perhaps even the Church of England. It is not something a good Puritan celebrates. Every day is the Lord's Day. That makes sense. In our time, it's probably the biggest holiday of the year. 
My goodness, there will be changes in the future. <laughs> yeah, there are a couple. <laughs> You'd be surprised if you lived to be as old as I am, that's for sure. Uh, I okay, so you were going to say some you. stories about the Huguenots. Well, just that it took a good deal of time for them to be welcomed. And, of course, eventually Boston specifically is practically an island, especially at high tide, with just the narrow neck of land going out into the countryside. So it is a city that is very much fortress-like, I would think, in that those that are in it get to know each other very well. And with that sort of communication between people who do not leave Boston all that often, being practically an island, they're going to get together. So there was much mm -hmm. mingling over time between those who were French Huguenots and those who were the families of the original settlers. So the suspicion of the French would ease over time. I'm very proud of my French heritage, though I cannot speak a word of French. And you never picked it and up? No, I had never seen the need. And of course, as the son of an immigrant, the most important thing in my life that was stressed by my father and I'm sure by many parents of French Huguenots was to fit in, to blend in, to be one of the community. Uh -huh. So I had never been taught French. I was taught as just another lad in Boston at the so North Riding School. He would have immediately thought, look, we've got to blend in, so we've got to speak whatever language they're speaking and just act like them. We've got to change our name. It's the only way we're going to fit in on this island that kind of acts like a small, secluded... That, that was the term I was looking for. Small, well, smaller than New York and Philadelphia, obviously, but congested enough that there was going to be much mingling wherever the people were from. But yes. We all wanted to be part of the community. That makes sense. Boy, the congestion, that hasn't changed. I was in Boston here a couple of years ago, and I'm telling you what, the, it is congested like you can't even imagine. Like you can't even go on the streets. There's just too much activity on the streets. You'll get run over. Well, yeah. it sounds that nothing has changed, which is why I'm out here in Canton more and more. Yeah, I want to ask you about Canton. Before I ask you about Canton, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about these, going back to your military career for a second. Well, I don't want to talk about that too much more after this, but there is one thing that I'm wondering. As I now understand that in your military career, it was just one event after the other that just didn't quite go the way where you would get the recognition, where you might receive rank or some acknowledgement that you know you did something good for the revolution. The fact that it was your military career was just a dead end. I wonder if that is why later on when all of these people that were your friends, the Sam Adams and all of these important people, all these people went to the Congress to start creating the nation, it seems like they left you out of that. Do you think it was because of these mishaps in your military career? And that's how it happened. Paul Revere was no coward. He was happy to fight for his country. This was a good, hardworking man that cared about his family and his community. But in a time when our revolution needed men who could make a difference on the battlefield, Revere was not that man. Even though he was willing to make any sacrifice for his country, when the Founding Fathers went to Philadelphia to create our government, Revere was not invited. In the next episode, you're going to hear about the Midnight Ride and what happened when Revere was unarmed and captured by the British troops while trying to warn the colonists that the American Revolution was about to begin. Thanks for listening, and subscribe now if you haven't yet. You won't want to miss the next episode.